citizen army with her fisteries to the sky. Leading them as a mighty man with a mad rage in his eye. My name is James Conley. I didn't come here to die. What to fight for the- Hello and welcome to the Plow and Stars. I am one of your hosts, Doc Plague. Um, I would like to thank you for tuning in this week. If you are new to our podcast, welcome. Um, we hope you enjoy it. Please let us know if you have any questions or anything. You can reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, our handle is at Plow and Stars. Our DMs are open. You can also send us an email uh, at contact at plowandstarspod.com. I am one of your four hosts, uh, Doc Plague. The others are uh, the Cat Dad, who is at Cat Dad Eternal. Then we have Red Bernard, who is at Red Bernard, and of course, Pay My Rant, who is at Pay My Rant. Um, you can feel free to reach out to any one of us or the show account. Uh, you can DM us, reach out, say hi if you want, whatever. Uh, you can also find our website, which is plowandstarspod.com. We also have a Patreon. We have uh, a few very generous supporters who are helping us kind of offset some of the production costs here. Uh, you can find our page at patreon.com slash plowandstars. And then we also have a Redbubble. And the website uh, address for that is redbubble.com slash people slash plowandstars slash shop. So this week we're going to be beginning a reading of The Foundations of Leninism by Joseph Stalin. The Foundations of Leninism is a big subject. To exhaust it, a whole volume would be required. Indeed, a whole number of volumes would be required. Naturally, therefore, my lectures cannot be an exhaustive exposition of Leninism. At best, they can offer a concise synopsis of the foundations of Leninism. Nevertheless, I consider it useful to give this synopsis in order to lay down some basic points of departure necessary for the successful study of Leninism. Expanding the foundations of Leninism still does not mean expounding the basis of Lenin's world outlook. Lenin's world outlook and the foundations of Leninism are not identical in scope. Lenin was a Marxist, and Marxism is, of course, the basis of his world outlook. But from this, it does not at all follow that an exposition of Leninism ought to begin with an exposition on the foundations of Marxism. To expound Leninism means to expound the distinctive and new in the works of Lenin that Lenin contributed to the general treasury of Marxism and that is naturally connected with his name. Only in this sense will I speak in my lectures of the foundations of Leninism. And so, what is Leninism? Some say that Leninism is the application of Marxism to the conditions that are peculiar to the situation in Russia. This definition contains a particle of truth, but not the whole truth by any means. Lenin indeed applied Marxism to the Russian conditions and applied it in a masterly way. But if Leninism were only the application of Marxism to the conditions that are peculiar to Russia, it would be a purely national and only a national, a purely Russian and only a Russian phenomenon. We know, however, that Leninism is not merely a Russian, but an international phenomenon rooted in the whole of the international development. That is why I think that this definition suffers from one-sidedness. Others say that Leninism is the revival of the revolutionary elements of Marxism of the 40s of the 19th century, as distinct from the Marxism of subsequent years when, it is alleged, it became moderate, non-revolutionary. If we disregard this foolish and vulgar division of the teachings of Marx into two parts, revolutionary and moderate, we must admit that even this totally inadequate and unsatisfactory definition contains a particle of truth. This particle of truth is that Lenin did indeed restore the revolutionary content of Marxism, which had been suppressed by the opportunists of the Second International. Still, that is but a particle of the truth. 
The whole truth about Leninism is that Leninism not only restored Marxism, but also took a step forward, developing Marxism further under the new conditions of capitalism and of the class struggle of the proletariat. What then, in the last analysis, is Leninism? Leninism is Marxism of the era of imperialism and the proletarian revolution. To be more exact, Leninism is the theory and tactics of the proletarian revolution in general, the theory and tactics of the dictatorship of the proletariat in particular. Marx and Engels pursued their activities in the pre-revolutionary period. We have the proletarian revolution in mind. When developed, imperialism did not yet exist in the period of the proletarians' preparation for revolution. In the period when the proletarian revolution was not yet an immediate practical inevitability. But Lenin, the disciple of Marx and Engels, pursued his activities in the period of developed imperialism, in the period of the unfolding proletarian revolution, when the proletarian revolution had already triumphed in one country, had smashed bourgeois democracy, and had ushered in the era of proletarian democracy, the area of the Soviets. That is why Leninism is the further development of Marxism. It is usual to point to the exceptionally militant and exceptionally revolutionary character of Leninism. That is quite correct. But this specific feature of Leninism is due to two causes. Firstly, to the fact that Leninism emerged from the proletarian revolution, the imprint of which cannot but bear. Secondly, the fact that it grew and became strong in clashes with the opportunism of the Second International, the fight against which was and remains an essential preliminary condition for the successful fight against capitalism. It must not be forgotten that between Marx and Engels on one hand and Lenin on the other, there lies a whole period of undivided domination of the opportunism of the Second International, and the ruthless struggles against this opportunism could not but constitute one of the most important tasks of Leninism. Section 1. The Historical Roots of Leninism Leninism grew up and took shape under the conditions of imperialism. When the contradictions of capitalism had reached an extreme point, when the proletarian revolution had become an immediate practical question, when the old period of preparation of the working class for revolution had come up and passed over to a new period, that of the direct assault on capitalism. Lenin called imperialism moribund capitalism. Why? Because imperialism carries the contradictions of capitalism to their last bounds, to the extreme limit beyond which revolution begins. Of these contradictions, there are three which must be regarded as the most important. The first contradiction is the contradiction between labor and capital. Imperialism and the omnipotence of the monopolist trusts and syndicates of the banks and the financial oligarchy in the industrial countries. In the fight against this omnipotence, the customary methods of the working class, trade unions and cooperatives, parliamentary parties, and the parliamentary struggle have proved to be totally inadequate. Either place yourself at the mercy of capital, eke out a wretched existence of old, and sink lower and lower, or adopt a new weapon. This is the alternative imperialism puts before the vast masses of the proletariat. Imperialism brings the working class to revolution. The second contradiction is the contradiction among the various financial groups and imperialist powers in their struggle for sources of raw materials for foreign territory. Imperialism is the export of capital to the sources of raw materials. The frenzied struggle for monopolist possession of these sources, the struggle for a redivision of the already divided world, a struggle waged with particular fury by new financial groups and powers seeking a place in the sun against the old groups and powers, which cling tenaciously to what they have seized. This frenzied struggle among the various groups of capitalists is notable in that it includes an inevitable element, imperialist wars, wars for the annexation of foreign territory. This circumstance, in its turn, is notable in that it leads to the mutual weakening of the imperialists, 
to the weakening of the position of capitalism in general, to the acceleration of the advent of the proletarian revolution, and to the practical necessity of this revolution. A third contradiction is a contradiction between the handful of ruling civilized nations and the hundreds of millions of the colonial and dependent peoples of the world. Imperialism is the most barefaced exploitation and the most inhumane oppression of hundreds of millions of people inhabiting vast colonies and dependent countries. The purpose of this exploitation and of this oppression is to squeeze out super profits. But in exploiting these countries, imperialism is compelled to, to build their railways, factories, and mills, industrial and commercial centers. The appearance of the class of proletarians, the emergence of a native intelligentsia, the awakening of a national consciousness, the growth of the liberation movement. Such are the inevitable results of this policy. The growth of the revolutionary movement in all colonies and dependent countries, without exception, clearly testifies to this fact. This circumstance is of importance for the proletarian inasmuch as it saps radically the position of the capitalism by converting the colonies and dependent countries from reserves of imperialism into reserves of the proletarian revolution. Such, in general, are the principal contradictions of imperialism, which have converted the old, flourishing capitalism into moribund capitalism. The significance of the imperialist wars, which broke out ten years ago, among other things, in the fact that it gathered all these contradictions into a single knot and threw them on the scales, thereby accelerating and facilitating the revolutionary battles of the proletariat. In other words, imperialism was instrumental not only in making a revolution a practical inevitability, but also in creating favorable conditions for a direct assault on the citadels of capitalism. Such was the international situation which gave birth to Leninism. Some may say, this is all very well, but what has it to do with Russia, which was not and could not be a classical land of imperialism? What has it to do with Lenin, who worked primarily in Russia and for Russia? Why did Russia, of all countries, become the home of Leninism, the birthplace of the theory and tactics of the proletarian revolution? Because Russia was the focus of all these contradictions of imperialism. Because Russia, more than any other country, was pregnant with revolution, and she alone, therefore, was in a position to solve those contradictions in a revolutionary way. To begin with, Tsarist Russia was home of every kind of oppression, capitalist, colonial, and militarist, in its most inhuman and barbarous form. Who does not know that in Russia the omnipotence of capital is combined with the despotism of Tsarism, the aggressiveness of Russian nationalism, with Tsarism's role of executioner in regard to the non-Russia peoples, the exploitation of entire regions, Turkey, Persia, China, with the seizure of these regions by Tsarism, with wars of conquest? Lenin was right in saying that Tsarism was military feudal imperialism. Tsarism was the concentration of the worst features of imperialism raised to a high pitch. To proceed, Tsarist Russia was a major reserve of Western imperialism, not only in the sense that it gave free entry to foreign capital, which controlled such basic branches of Russia's national economy as the fuel and metallurgical industries, but also in the sense that it supplied the Western imperialists with millions of soldiers. A member of the Russian army, 14 million strong, which shed its blood on the imperialist fronts to safeguard the staggering profits of the British and French capitalists. Further, Tsarism was not only the watchdog of imperialism in East Europe, but in addition, it was the agent of Western imperialism for squeezing out of the population hundreds of millions by way of interest on loans obtained in Paris and London, Berlin and Brussels. Finally, Tsarism was the most faithful ally of Western imperialism in the partition of Turkey, Persia, and China, etc. Who does not know that the imperialist war was waged by Tsarism in alliance with the imperialists of the Entente, and that Russia was an essential element in that war? That is why the interests of Tsarism and of Western imperialism were interwoven and ultimately became merged in a single skein of imperialist interests. 
Could Western imperialism resign itself to the loss of such a powerful support in the East and of such a reservoir of manpower and resources as old czarist bourgeois Russia was without exerting all its strength to wage a life and death struggle against the revolution in Russia with the object of defending and preserving czarism? Of course not. But from this, it follows that whoever wanted to strike at czarism necessarily raised his hand against imperialism. Whoever rose against czarism had to rise against imperialism as well, for whoever was bent on overthrowing czarism had to overthrow imperialism too, if he really intended not merely to defeat czarism but to make a clean sweep of it. Thus, the revolution against czarism verged on and had to pass into a revolution against imperialism, into proletarian revolution. Meanwhile, in Russia, a tremendous popular revolution was rising, headed by the most revolutionary proletariat in the world, which possessed such an important ally as the revolutionary peasantry of Russia. Does it need proof that such a revolution could not stop halfway, that in the event of success it was bound to further advance and raise a banner of revolution against imperialism? That is why Russia was bound to become the focus of the contradictions of imperialism, not only in the sense that it was in Russia that these contradictions were revealed most plainly, in view of their particularly repulsive and particularly intolerable character, and were not only because Russia was highly important prop of Western imperialism, connecting Western finance capital with colonies in the East, but also because Russia was the only country in which there existed a real force capable of resolving the contradictions of imperialism in a revolutionary way. From this, it follows, however, that the revolution in Russia could not but become a proletarian revolution, that from its very inception, it could not but assume an international character, and that therefore it could not but shake the very foundations of world imperialism. Under these circumstances, could the Russian communists confine their work within the narrow national bounds of the Russian Revolution? Of course not. On the contrary, the whole situation, both internal, the profound revolutionary crisis, and the external, the war, impelled them to go beyond these bounds in their work, to transfer the struggle to the international arena, to expose the ulcers of imperialism, to prove that the collapse of capitalism was inevitable, to smash social chauvinism and social pacifism, and finally to overthrow capitalism in their own country and to forge a new fighting weapon for the proletariat, the theory and tactics of the proletarian revolution, in order to facilitate the task of overthrowing capitalism for the proletarian of all countries. Nor could the Russian communists act otherwise, for this path offered the chance of producing certain changes in the international situation which could safeguard Russia against the restoration of the bourgeois order. That is why Russia became the home of Leninism and why Lenin, the leader of the Russian communists, became its creator. The same thing approximately happened in the case of Russia and Lenin as is the case of Germany and Marx and Engels in the 40s of the last century. Germany at that time was pregnant with bourgeois revolution, just like Russia at the beginning of the 20th century. Marx wrote at that time in the Communist Manifesto, The Communists turn their attention chiefly to Germany because the country is on the eve of bourgeois revolution that is bound to be carried out under more advanced conditions of European civilization and with a much more developed proletariat than that of England was in the 17th and of France in the 18th century and because the bourgeois revolution in Germany will be but the prelude to an immediately following proletariat revolution. In other words, the center of revolutionary movement was shifting to Germany. There can be hardly any doubt that this very circumstance, noted by Marx in the above-quoted passage, that served as the probable reason why it was precisely Germany that became the birthplace of scientific socialism, and why the leaders of the German proletariat, Marx and Engels, became its creators. The same, only to a still greater degree, must be said of Russia at the beginning of the 20th century. Russia was then on the eve of a bourgeois revolution. She had to accomplish this revolution at a time when its conditions in Europe were more advanced and with a proletariat that was more developed than that of Germany in the 40s of the 19th century, let alone Britain and France. 
Moreover, all the evidence went to show that this revolution was bound to serve as a ferment and as a prelude to the proletarian revolution. We cannot regard it as accidental that as early as 1902, when the Russian Revolution was still in an embryonic state, Lenin wrote the prophetic words in his pamphlet, What is to be done? History has now confronted us, i.e. Russian Marxists, with an immediate task, which is the most revolutionary of all the immediate tasks, that confront the proletariat of any country, and that the fulfillment of this task, the destruction of the most powerful bulwark, not only of European, but also, it may now be said, of Asiatic reaction, would make the Russian proletariat the vanguard of the international revolutionary proletariat. In other words, the center of the revolutionary movement was bound to shift to Russia. As we know, the course of the revolution in Russia has more than vindicated Lenin's prediction. It is surprising, after all this, that a country which has accomplished such a revolution and possesses such a proletariat should have been the birthplace of the theory and tactics of the proletarian revolution, is it surprising that Lenin, the leader of Russia's proletariat, became also the creator of this theory and tactics and the leader of the international proletariat? That has been the introduction and section one to Lenin, uh, I'm sorry, Stalin's foundation of Leninism. Thank you. I come like a comet newborn, like the sun that arises at morning. I come like the furious tempest that follows a thundercloud's warning. I come like the fiery lava from cloud-covered mountains volcanic. I come like a storm from the north that the oceans awake to impact.